Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 6, 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, what, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of God to us. All right. Well, good morning, guys. We doing okay? Oh, man, a rowdy bunch. Let's get to work. Hey, uh, my name is Chad Kinser, as Sean said, and uh, one of the pastors at downtown, teaching pastor. But uh, helping out the, the elders and the team here as Andrew is on sabbatical. I've had a chance to hang out with him a few times. He and the family are doing well, so keep praying for them as they're getting rest and uh, finishing up sabbatical. I think they've got just a, f- a few weeks left. Um, but hey, it's, it's, a, it's a joy uh, to get to worship with you. My, my heart is full this morning getting to sing with you, getting to hear your voices wash over me uh, in faith. And so now to get to share God's word with you is a real privilege. So um, I, I want to begin in prayer. So if you'd pray for me, I'll, I'll pray for you. And we'll see how God would shape us with his word. Amen. Hey, just take a second um, as we pray and just uh, ask God to give you ears to hear and a heart to receive today. Ask God to, um, even by his word today, to quiet you with his love.
Father, we confess today as we come before your word that your word has the ability to go places inside of us that no one else's word can go. Your word has the ability to do things for us that we can't do for ourselves. And we confess that your love is better than life. And we don't want to go anywhere else. And so, Jesus, would you help us now? Speak to us by your word, we pray. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, this last week, I got to go to a downtown community group. Um, one of my favorite things to do as an elder and pastor in the church is to, to go sit in living rooms with our, with our people and talk about things that are, that are on their mind. Uh, talk about things that are particular to their groups, things that they're concerned about, worried about, things that they're grappling with. And this group had a lot of questions about um, controversial doctrines or things that we believe that tend to, to divide Christians at times, even to divide community groups. And so they wanted to talk about things like uh, uh, the, the stance of the church on predestination or God's election of, of people to salvation. If you don't know anything about that, you're probably better off, but they wanted to talk about that. Uh, they wanted to talk about the um, LGBTQ and the, and, the, and the church's position on uh, sexual orientation and different things like that. We, they wanted to talk about the role of women in the church and women in leadership and, and, and misogyny and patriarchy as, as culture wants to talk about things in the church and, and all kinds of controversial issues. It was a great conversation, super easy questions, and we were just out of there in an hour, right? Uh, but here's the thing. I recognized that as the conversation was going, that whatever I'm saying from Scripture, whatever I'm trying to articulate that we believe as a church from the Bible, doesn't sound like what the culture is saying. And I just made a point at one point in the conversation, hey, I understand that what I'm saying sounds really weird in the midst of this cultural moment. Like it almost sounds antiquated and narrow-minded and dumb. And that's what, scripture, that's, that's what the culture is, is telling us that we are, that we're on the wrong side of history, that if we don't figure out how to massage what we believe, if we don't figure out how to nuance and adjust and negotiate some things, then we're just going to be left behind altogether. And one thing I just said is, hey, as we keep moving and as culture keeps progressing, we're going to get increasingly weird, and that's actually not a threat. That's not a threat to us. It's actually an opportunity. And I believe that with all my heart, that, that Oftentimes we can feel as though when culture keeps moving, we're going to have the rug ripped from underneath us and, and they're going to shut this whole thing down. Actually, that's not going to happen. We just sang a song that says not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. And that's not a threat to us. It's actually an opportunity because then, at least then, discipleship will mean something. Because we live in a cultural moment where you can have this sort of fuzzy, generic belief about God where you can say, anybody can say, I believe in God, but then there's no, no functional difference in a person's life for having confessed that. But in a cultural moment where things keep progressing and believing in God does nothing for you, it's actually pushing you in the wrong side of history. Those who actually do believe in God, their discipleship will mean something and there has to be an effect and will become distinct in the world right, will become distinct and prophetic. And so there's no threat for us being shut down. What's, what's happening globally in Christianity is we live in a weird place. It's normal to us, but we live in a weird place. So the fact that we can gather in a room this size with as many of you as there are here, I'm up here talking with no fear for my life. We're singing songs, no threat to our safety. This is weird, Globally, Christians are meeting underground. Globally, Christians are meeting in secret because of hostile governments pushing back against them. 
they live in persecution and marginalization. That's normal global Christianity. What we have is strange to us, strange to the world, and it ought to be even a threat to us as we go, our discipleship better mean something because we could fall asleep in our safety, right? That, that's actually a bit dangerous. And so here, here's what's interesting. As Christianity keeps moving, as culture keeps moving, we're going to have to talk about things that the Scripture actually puts before us today and take them seriously. So, so there's two themes in Scripture um, in this passage today that we'll talk about. Number one is rejection. The Scripture is going to talk about rejection today. And the second theme is mission. Rejection and mission, but mission in this sense. The power of the mission of Jesus in the face of rejection. So, so the passage is going to talk to us about those couple of things today. We'll run through it, and then we'll see how God shapes us. Let's get to the first one, Jesus Jesus himself was rejected. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard it were astonished. They said, where did this man get these things, and what is the wisdom given to him, and how were such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And his brother James and Joseph and Judas and Simon... And aren't his sisters here with us? And it says they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. And so this is a shocking passage all on its own. If we just take these first six verses, we're going to find that it's quite a shocking passage. But then in the scope of what's happening in the first six chapters of the book of Mark, this passage is meant to pack a punch. So here's what's been happening. Jesus has been teaching off the Sea of Galilee. You might remember a couple of chapters ago, the crowd gathered so big, he was unfolding the kingdom parables that he had to step into a boat, push away from the shore, and talk to the crowds back on the beach. He was talking there and performing many miracles, teaching. Crowds are gathering. He goes off to the other side, performs some miracles. And then he comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. He comes back with his disciples. It says he shows up on the Sabbath day. He stands in the synagogue and he preaches a sermon. It must have been an amazing sermon because it says the crowd that day was astonished. Never heard anything like this. Never heard the kingdom of God talked about with such texture and insight Never talked about with such power and authority. It says they were astonished. But then this is where things start to get strange. Because certainly the group of people that day had heard the buzz around his ministry. People from all over the region flocking to him. They heard about the teachings. They heard about the miracles. They heard about all of that stuff. And now he's back with the people that he grew up with in his own hometown. Try to capture this. People that Jesus would have been in the synagogue with over three decades. Saturday in and Saturday out, worshiping there, singing songs with them, listening to rabbis teach over the course of 30 years. This is the same group of people that would have known him growing up. So it says he preaches this sermon, and initially they're blown away, but here's where the passage turns and things get strange. In verse 4 it says, their astonishment turns to offense. It turns to offense. It's actually the word scandalizo in the Greek where we get our word scandalized. They were actually scandalized by him. Now, step back because you go, this actually keeps on trend with all the way that Jesus has been responded to since the book began. So when he opened his ministry, the Jewish civic leaders, the, the civic leaders there in Jerusalem were offended and threatened by Jesus because he was upending their power and their political influence. 
Then you have the religious leaders offended and threatened by Jesus because he was confronting their man-made religion and self-righteousness. So you have the right-wing elites and the left-wing elites threatened and offended by Jesus. Then you have the town of the demoniac where Jesus shows up, performs this great miracle over the deranged man in their community, but then they're freaked out by his power and it says they beg him to leave because they're threatened by, what if, if he can do that to him, what's he going to do to us? Jesus has been a threat and people have been offended by him the whole time. Now he's back in Nazareth, his own hometown, small town, grassroots people, and the reason they're offended by him is because of his upbringing. Notice what it says again in verse 2. Where did this man get such things? And what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the blue-collar guy that did contracted cabinets at my house? Isn't, Isn't this the son of Mary? Don't we know his brothers and his sisters? Aren't they here among us? So they go, wait, wait a second. That was a great sermon, but who do you think you are? Where did you get these things? Hey, great for you that you've been on this preaching tour and doing a bunch of magic tricks, but you're going to come back here and tell us the kingdom of God is at hand, and you're going to point at yourself saying the kingdom has arrived in you? Didn't you grow up with us? Didn't we learn carpentry alongside each other? Aren't, didn't we go to rabbinic, didn't we go to school together, a little Jewish school together? And then in verse 3, it gets offensive because it says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? That might not read like something to us, but in their culture, a man was never traced through his mother's line. The descent and the, 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 the lineage of a man was traced, or a woman, was traced through their father. And so for them to reference him as a blue-collar worker, his manual labor, then bypass any acknowledgement of Joseph to jump onto his mom, they're not only speaking derogatorily about him, they're speaking derogatory about Mary. Your mom isn't even a woman of repute in our community. She was pregnant outside of wedlock. Tim Keller is going to suggest some insight here like this. You can't hide things in a small town. Anyone from a small town says amen. One of the things you can't hide is when Joseph and Mary get married in June, but then a baby is born in September. Small towns never forget things like that. They never, never, never forget things like that. They're saying You think you're hot stuff, Jesus. We don't even know who your father is. We have no idea about your father. It could be Joseph, but it might not be. We don't even know who your father is. Therefore, you're a man without a father. In our culture, that means you're a man without an identity. You're a nobody. You're a bastard. They're offended by Jesus. So it appears that rumors and ridicule about his Mysterious birth followed him not just in those early years, but all through his life, even around his family. And then there's a strange line in verse 5 where it says that he could do no mighty works in that town. It's not like Jesus all of a sudden lost his power. It's a line to suggest that they rejected him with such intensity that there was no one open to him except a few, and he did ministry among them. And what's the point of all of this? Scholar William Lane helped me get some insight here as to how we can connect the dots. In spite of what all these people had heard and seen, they failed to penetrate the veil of the ordinariness which characterized this one who had grown up in the village. So this passage, it does emphasize the real humanity of Jesus, doesn't it? He was a carpenter. He was the son of an ordinary family. 
It highlights the ordinariness of Jesus. Their problem with Jesus is that if the kingdom of God is really coming in you like you say it is, then why don't you look more special? <laughs> why, why isn't there more celebrity uh, sort of pomp and circumstance around you? How come you're just like us? If you really are the son of God, then overthrow Rome and set up a new Israeli regime. Bring the kingdom of God after all. He wasn't doing for them what they wanted done for them. He wasn't meeting their expectations. He was quite plain in their opinion. And that bothered them. They were offended by it. And now that begs the question for you and me, doesn't it? What happens when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? What happens when Jesus doesn't do for you what you want him to do for you? What happens in the ordinariness of your life and your faith and it doesn't feel like anything special is happening? Is Jesus someone at that point to be offended by and bypassed and just go your own way? Or is that still a moment where you recognize he has the provocative, prerogative to let his will be done? They were offended by Jesus because he wasn't meeting their expectation. Now the passage though turns to us who would call ourselves his disciples because it wasn't that he was rejected by his people. He says to his disciples, they're going to reject you too. Notice with me in verse 7. It says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them not to take anything for themselves on the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money for their belts, just to wear sandals and don't put on two tunics. And whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart. And if at any place they will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet off as a testimony against them. So so here's what happens. They leave Nazareth, and Jesus now does with the disciples what he said he was going to do. He called them to himself, and he says, I'm going to send you out to carry out my ministry, and now's the moment where it happens. He sends them out in groups of two, and he says, you've been hearing me teach. You've been seeing the way I do ministry among other people. I want you to go do the same thing. I want you to teach like me. I want you to say the things that I've been saying, and I want you to carry out ministry just like I've been doing it. But when you do so, I don't want you to take anything for yourself except the clothes on your back. And the whole point there is that he was trying to to give them a second opportunity to realize that God really will provide for them. You remember the moment in the boat when the storm was coming, and they're like, have you just brought us out here to die? And he was like, no, 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 don't you have faith? I'll, I'll take care of you. This is a moment where he sends them out and he says, hey, let's, let's have a redo on that moment and you'll learn again that God really will provide for you. That's what that's all about. But then there's this really weird thing in verse 10. He says, hey, you've seen what's been happening to me. The people have rejected me. They don't want anything to do with me. They're offended. But it's also going to be true of you. If you go in my name, they're going to reject you. They're going to be offended by you. And he says, when that happens, I want you to shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. It's this sort of ancient cry of Taylor Swift, shake, shake, shake it off, right? It's not even that funny, but just felt like we needed something, right? So he says to do this for them. What's going on here? Well, it was an ancient Jewish practice that when they would travel outside of Israel and they would go to a pagan nation, They would come back to Israel, and before they would cross the border, they would shake the dust off of their clothing, shake the dust off of their sandal as a sign to say, I'm not going to associate with pagan nations, and it was a sign of God's judgment against them. 
It was this sort of self-righteous, self-entitled way of saying, I'm superior, we are superior to all other nations. And so Jesus says, I want you to go out and you proclaim the kingdom. But when they reject you like they've rejected me, when they won't listen to you like they haven't listened to me, I want you to perform the sign against them that they performed to the nations as a prophetic sign that they better listen to what they've heard lest the judgment that they give to the nations would be on them. This is going to throws. And what Jesus is suggesting is, yes, the kingdom of God comes with love, but the kingdom of God, lean in with me here, is both offensive and attractive. The kingdom of God is both offensive and attractive. Listen, it's attractive, isn't it? We believe the forgiveness of sins. We believe anybody can be forgiven of their sins. We believe the grace of God. We believe the love of God. We believe in the restoration of all things. We believe in the dignity of every person, regardless of race or skin color or background. We believe in justice for the marginalized and the oppressed. We believe in all of that. And the world would say along with us, that's attractive. We want that. But the kingdom of God is also offensive. You say, what do you mean? Because the only way to all of that is through a homeless Jewish rabbi who is stapled to a Roman cross, put in a grave, and raised from the dead three days later. And the only way you get the attraction of the kingdom of God is to hang on the robe of one Jew. Jesus was an American. We're not saved by American ideals. We're saved by the righteousness of a Jew. That's offensive. And all the nations hang on him. And so some of us hear that and you go, well, I just want to be an attractive Christian. (laughs) I just want to be known for niceness and Oklahoma hospitality, and I want to have Christian music melodically playing in my favorite chicken fast food restaurant, and I just want to have attractive Christianity. And there's others of us that go, I don't care about being attractive at all. I just want to be offensive. And you're the kind of person who like blows up Facebook with religious whistleblowing on everybody, and you feel more proud of yourself when they dislike your comments. You're actually being a jerk, right? But notice what Jesus is going to say, Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you, when they persecute you, when they utter all evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here's what's actually indicting to me, what's convicting to me, is Jesus is going to say, if you're only known for the attractiveness of discipleship, or you're only known for the offensiveness of discipleship, or even worse, what's most true in my life at times it seems, you're not even known for either of those things, then something is wrong with your discipleship. Because Jesus couldn't get out of the way of being both attractive and offensive. It wasn't one or the other, it was both. When he sent his disciples out to do his work, they couldn't get out of the way. It was always both, attractive and offensive. That's true discipleship, because it looks like your Lord. Listen, something that just blew me away as I thought more about this. Historically, if there's ever been a group of Christians that have made an impact on their city... If Christians have ever seen God bring a movement of revival and renewal, two things have always been true. 
Christians have been radically exclusive. There is salvation in no one else except Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's not what you hope is true. It's not what you want to be true. Jesus is Lord exclusive. But it's also true, at the same time Christians have been exclusive in their message, they've been radically inclusive. This is for anybody. This is for everybody. This is for the busted. This is for the educated. This is for the poor. This is for whatever your sexual orientation is. Come on in. Hey, we were there too. This is for anybody. Political persuasion, come on in. This is radically inclusive. This goes out to anybody and everybody. You can read the scriptures. The track record of God's people is miserable. Our track record is pathetic. But his grace, all the more. Radically exclusive, radically inclusive, all the same. They rejected Jesus. If you go out with him, they'll reject you too. But here's our third point today where we'll land. The mission goes on. The mission goes on. Notice the last two verses. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. That's offensive. (laughs) You should turn from your sins. Who are you to tell me I have sins, right? That's offensive. 13, but they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. That's attractive. Offensive and attractive. Here's what's crazy about the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus. Sometimes we think that if people reject us, that they're invalidating us and they're invalidating the message of Christianity, that they're going to shut the whole thing down. If it's rejected, it's going to shut it all down. But here's what's actually true throughout history and all over the world. Where there is the most pushback, where there's the most hostility, you're also seeing the most growth. If you look at the church of God in Iraq, in Iran, if you look at the church in Turkey, in China, I could keep listing all kinds of places where there's government hostility, where there's persecution, marginalization, underground church, it's absolutely exploding. It's absolutely exploding. God actually tends to use the faithful witness of his people in the face of opposition as a prophetic sign that the message is actually true. And even when they kill Christians, I mean, you hear of beheadings all over the place, Egypt. Even when they kill Christians, you're going to shut us up by killing us. You're actually validating our message because we believe it so much we'll die for it. Tertullian, the early church father in the third century, said, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. You can't shut this thing down. And so it's amazing when you look at Jesus and you go, so who do you send out? Jesus sends out the disciples. This is, this is like the worst group of people to send out. Let me tell you, so we're in chapter 6. Here's what we know about the disciples to this point. Jesus unfolds the kingdom parables in chapter 4, and they go, hey, um, I don't get it. Can I get like a tutorial? This is the disciples that he sends out. They don't understand his teachings. This is what we know about them to chapter 6. Number two, remember the whole boat episode? And they go, did you bring us out here just to kill us? Don't you care that we're perishing? You're taking a nap. Sorry to wake you up, but we're going to die. And Jesus says, Be still. Guys, do you not believe still yet after all you've seen? 
They don't believe his, they don't understand his teachings. They're not even sure he's going to protect them. And number three, they're completely insensitive to the needs of the people around them. The crowds get big and they press in on Jesus and they're going, stand back, stand back, make way. And Jesus is like, guys, shut up. Don't you realize these people need ministry? And this is the group he sends out. They don't get his teachings. They're not sure he'll protect them. And they're completely insensitive to the needs of people around them. That sounds like us. But this is who he sends out. This is the status of his group. And I have one more quote before we land today. An individual experience, too many Christians have few, if any, non-Christian friends. We spend our days whenever the choice is ours with Christians. And as a result, we rarely put the gospel to the test as the disciples were having to do. We go for safety in the faith while trying to follow a Lord who risked himself in the incarnation and everything that followed. We build up our security while serving the Lord who went to death, who went by death to resurrection. And the result is that we narrow the power of the gospel and our perception of all of its possibilities. And then we say our plea is that we need more training. I'll, I'll be willing to go out if I just understood more, if I knew more, if I had more training. But that simple observation is met by the fact that the disciples needed more training, much more training, yet they were sent out and they were effective. And you're like, that sounds like the worst plan ever, Jesus. But we know it worked because we're here 2,000 later, two years later still talking about it. And whoever shared the gospel with you probably stumbled all over themselves, and you're like, yeah, but I think I want to believe that. God uses it. So I've got this neighbor who lives across the street from me, and every so often in like the middle of the service, we have the intercession moment, and we'll pray for renewal in our city. We'll pray for revival. We'll even pray for our neighbors that don't know Jesus. And I've been praying for this neighbor like every time we would do that in our services. And about a month ago, I had this conviction that um, I would spend my life being a maverick in the pulpit, but a coward on my street. Easy to say these things up here, but how do you live on the block, you know? And I thought, hey, I should probably quit praying for my neighbor as though he's going to get saved by osmosis. That's just going to magically flutter about over to him and something will happen over there. And so, uh, man, with this kind of conviction and thought, I, I should probably, I've been praying, but I should probably talk to my neighbor. So he has this little shizu that he walks around the neighborhood with that comes and poops in my yard, and he's like, I have, I have a bag for that. And you're like, yeah, that's great. But we have this great relationship, me and my neighbor. And uh, so about a month ago, I just said, hey, I, I want to apologize if I've never if I've never told you that I'm a Christian. And um, I'm just curious, what do you think about Christianity? And he goes, man, I have been hurt by all kinds of people who claim to be holy people. But I believe in God, and I just choose to practice faith in my house. We had more conversation. It didn't end with him He's saying, hey, let's bow, our prayer. let's bow our heads and pray a sinner's prayer. Like, it didn't end that way, but we have this relationship together, and we have this friendship, neighbors across the street, and more conversations are unfolding. 
But it was just a moment where I just want to say, like, hey, what if we actually took the teachings of our Lord and just said, I want to try. <laughs> I want to try. I want to be identified with you in the world, even if it means I get rejected. Not everyone will, but some. Where do you get the courage for that? This is the big finish today. Where, where, like, where am I trying to get the courage for that? It's at the same place we talk about every single week. It's the cross of our Lord. The cross isn't just the place you look to get forgiveness of sins and salvation. The cross is the place you look to, for example, and motivation, for equipping in the faith. So here's what's happening at the cross. The rejection that we fear in the world was actually suffered by Jesus, the greatest rejection of all. Because of all the ways we've rejected the authority of the Father, he took our rejection in him so that we could receive acceptance from the Father. In all the ways that our guilt would distance us from the Father, he took that on himself, we might receive the approval of the Father. In his greatest hour of need, his disciples alienated him, but he stood in their place and brought them into a new family, the church, as he's done with us. And so the invitation today is to discipleship. To be a disciple in the world, to follow Jesus, offensive and attractive, exclusive and inclusive, that we might say, just like we did in our assurance, God, would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, would you grant us courage? Jesus, thank you that you're not ashamed of us. Father, would you help us to consider what it looks like to be disciples of Jesus in the world, to be associated with him, accounted with him. Would you help us to look more like him? Would you help us to risk in the world? Jesus, we want to hang on your robe. You're the only hope for our life. You're the only hope for the world. We confess this is true. Shape us as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.